welcome to this edition of Taxpayer Talk. I'm your host, Peter Williams, a member of the board at the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more accountability. Our guest this time is Stephen Franks, perhaps best known as an ACT MP in the early part of this century. But for the last 18 years, he's been back doing what he's done, well, for most of his professional life, that's practising law. As one of the principals of the public law firm Franks Ogilvy, Stephen Franks has been a major driving force in the Water Users Group. That's a group which has taken the former Minister of Local Government to court over her claim that she had advice from the Crown Law Office, who are the government's lawyers, saying that the Treaty of Waitangi demands that water services are co-governed by Māori and iwi. The Water Users Group would like to see what that advice is, or if indeed it actually exists. Because the former minister told her cabinet colleagues that she had advice that co-governance was required under the treaty, and in fact the former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern claimed that co-governance is required to avoid court claims of treaty breaches. As Stephen Franks writes on his website, stephenfranks.co.nz, we need to see the reasoning in the alleged Crown Law advice. If the Minister's claims are true, all New Zealanders should have access because it's revolutionary. It is saying that our democracy can be trumped by inherited chiefly privilege. It would mean otherwise unqualified people getting what could be lifetime appointments giving indirect veto control of user or voter or ratepayer assets and are invulnerable to dismissal. It's quite a frightening thought, isn't it? But we're getting ahead of the story, so let's bring in Stephen Franks. Stephen, thanks for joining us here on Taxpayer Talk. Let's go back to the start of this. How did the Water Users Group start and what prompted you to take the court action against a government minister? The group itself had been in, in uh, contemplation since about 2016 when um, there was quite a fury around the country about uh, trying to ban companies that wanted to bottle water and export it. And we were involved for um, several companies that were that were affected by it and effect, essentially they were all scared to stick their heads up and and join the argument and, and point out that it was a absolutely fractional uh, of a tiny percent of the water that's available for New Zealand and it wasn't depriving anyone of anything um, because of the way that uh, they just get donged and uh, um, so we'd seen a water users group as speaking up on water issues from an objective point of view, a bit like the telecommunication users group and the major electricity users group and some of the other uh, consumer bodies that stand up um, and can speak for consumers or users uh, against, often against the suppliers or against the regulators. So you started off uh, with an issue a long way removed from what has become your major cause in recent times, Three Waters. So... How did you get to the stage of taking court action against Nanaya Mahuta when she was the uh, the Minister for Local Government and uh, and had brought in the Three Waters legislation or the Water Services Entities Bill? Yeah. Um, trying to understand the background to it uh, and looking at the Cabinet papers 
and coming across these paragraphs that asserted that in some way the treaty required these weird um, subordination of, of control to iwi interests. And it was so remote from the real treaty court cases, including the one where um, Cook, uh, Justice Cook, first used the word partnership. Uh, and then we also came across um, some material by Gary Judd QC, the NQC is now Casey, of course. Uh, he published a summary, or uh, NBR, I think, published a summary of an opinion he'd written, which really pointed out how fanciful a lot of the stuff had become, and in particularly the so-called partnership obligations that local authorities and government agencies were starting to assert all over the place. So we thought this is pretty significant. The de facto effect of Three Waters is a sort of privatisation to Māori because the powers that they're given uh, under the scheme is effectively a, an ability to veto things or to impose requirements where the rational thing will be for the water entities to buy them off. Mm. Well, it's uh, David Seymour that says the, the Three Waters plan is essentially uh, an infrastructure project dressed up as a treaty settlement, and uh, you can't help but agree with his thinking there. But you were questioning... Yeah, it's set, it set, it set up for just infinite range of what has sometimes been called the Tanifar tax. And just that there are, I mean, and you'd, it's a, it would only be human, it would be strange if um, Iwi didn't take advantage of the of, of the tool, the weapon that's being presented to them in this legislation. And I think it's intended. I'm, I'm quite sure that they've been assured. Probably, look, it's too hard for us to say that you're going to get a royalty on all the water that goes through or a rent. Uh, that's a step too far politically, but we'll set it up so that these entities have got to give you a pretty handsome living anyway. So you want to see the advice that uh, Crown Law gave Nanaia Mahuta. Do you believe that the Crown Law Office actually wrote some advice for Nanaia Mahuta saying you must have co-governance in the Three Waters entities because it's uh, going to be a breach of the treaty otherwise. Did Crown Law actually say that to Nanaia Mahuta or don't you know? Is that what you're trying to find out? Yeah, we no, we genuinely don't know. And I wouldn't like to to guess. I mean, I think the I think it's it's not beyond it's not it's not entirely um, beyond imagination, even if we think that the the long line of cases and the very clear, um, statements in some cases about what the treaty is and what it isn't. Uh, essentially, there's a lot of law that says that it was a, um, a compact between the Crown and the executive and particular iwi and that it was about property rights and that it was a um, one that had been breached uh, and that there should be good faith between the parties. But it didn't say anything about um, about essentially... Um, a, a reserved uh, aristocratic right of control of public property and ratepayer property. It was there were a number of cases where that was expressly rejected. So it, 
we think it would be weird, but there's an awful lot weird happening in Wellington at the moment. There's an <laughs> yes. awful lot of the stuff being invented. Indeed, you would uh, know full well about that being right in the thick of it. But I understand that this Crown Law advice was actually up on the Department of Internal Affairs website for a long time, perhaps six months. Did you actually read that advice or do you know of anybody who did read it or take a copy of it uh, and see it back no, then? They, they, no, all that was up were the references in the in the government papers. So the minister's papers to cabinet essentially uh, boiling it down, said um, this co-governance, these co-governance features we have to do anyway because we have Crown Law advice uh, to the effect that the that they are treaty necessary for satisfying treaty obligations. Now, I'm paraphrasing it, but with three, three paragraphs, uh, they were repeated in or referred to in several places. So the the current stage of the case is that we are saying to the Crown, we need to see that advice. And although there's privilege for a lawyer's advice to their client, the law says that when you refer to, um, when you reveal or disclose advice you can't, you, uh, you've waived privilege to the advice and there's quite a few cases where they then have to show the whole of the advice or, or even more. Um, other documents that, it, that were only indirectly concerned. But the principle of it is you can't rely on privilege that's supposed to protect the frankness of communication if you then start telling people what your lawyers have said. And we think it's particularly important where the purpose of telling people what your lawyers have said is to try and persuade them that um, they can't argue against it, that it's a requirement and you're obliged essentially to accept it and, and act in accordingly. So we're saying to the court, um, please let us see the whole advice. Um, if she's correct, then that's extremely concerning to all New Zealanders because Crown Law's views are pretty weighty. Um, if she was making it up, then we we can be a bit reassured that Crown Law haven't gone um, peculiar or that there's still some integrity in their opinions. Um, but anyway, you, the court, need to see this because it goes to the heart of the question we're asking you. Uh, is the older law that defined the treaty or defined the boundaries to treaty obligations still are still applicable or are you saying that no um that's wrong all bets are off and we can now make it up as we go along and we've made it up to this to say that it justifies co-governance all right so you've already been to the high court uh so what did the yeah. high court say in their decision did they basically pass the buck or did they say that crown law have to give the advice to the water users group it was quite funny. When Crown Law first realised that their advice had been referred to in the Minister's papers, it, it appears that it was when we served the application, started the case. And about a month after we'd started, they contacted us just before Christmas and said, oh, that was all a mistake. It should have been redacted from the papers and you can't rely on a mistake. Uh, so please remove it from your papers and don't refer to it again. And of course, we, we said no way. 
the next step was that we said, we actually need to see it. And they then responded and said, we're going to ask the court to suppress it, to, to require you to remove it from your application. And in fact, in the way that they responded, we think they were asking the court to make an order that no one be allowed to refer to it, which we thought was pretty extreme. Um, they told us and they told the court that they'd had the papers taken down and they'd removed all the references. Well, in fact, they, they didn't. There's been other papers that they may not have known about that have been up all the way through and they've continued with these references. So th th this stuff has been available to the public for 18 months now. So we were pretty confident that the court was going to knock them back on their application against us, but um, which the court did. So we won in, against their, uh, their attempt to suppress it, but the court uh, then drew on some, uh, I'd say, some case law, some older case law to say, but in these circumstances, I'm not going to order that they show you the whole opinion. So that's what you go to the Court of Appeal about, to appeal that yep. part of the decision yep. saying, we believe this information should be put in front of the public because, after all, we want to ensure that the Minister is, well, let's be honest, that the Minister's telling the truth here because she may well have misled Cabinet or told a, a porky to Cabinet, therefore to Parliament, if this advice does not exist or says something else. Yeah, well, that, that would be an effect if we if we get set. What we really want is to see it. I mean, we really sincerely want to know just what how Crown Law's reasoned it, because a Crown Law opinion is usually fairly fully reasoned, and we want to understand how they can reach a conclusion that seems um, bizarre to us about the treaty if it exists. Of course, if it doesn't exist, that probably settles. You know, that 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 could be the end of the case. But the key thing is not so much, I mean, the, the public learning is a, a very big benefit, but it's more that the court needs to see what Crown Law is saying. Because the reality is, although the case is against the minister, uh, it's also against the Attorney General, who is the senior law officer of the Crown. And we really need to know what the Wellington establishment has now decided Um the treaty means or treaty obligations mean and just how that can trump normal democratic equality before the law, property rights of ratepayers and local authorities and all the previous law uh, about the treaty not being able to affect the property of parties other than the Crown. But the reality, Stephen, is that the Water Services Entity Bill is now law. It passed before Christmas. Other water legislation is before the House. What then is the point of this court case? Even if you do get a victory at the Court of Appeal, what difference is it going to make? The legislation's there, isn't it? It may be repealed and replaced down the track, but for now, it's there, isn't it? Yeah, look, I, I, I have no... Uh, we've, we've always said when asked, um, this, this cannot in... In constitutional theory, this a court cannot tell Parliament it can't pass a law and it can't invalidate the law. But an awful lot of conduct around New Zealand, local authorities everywhere, councillors, a lot of officials are participating in uh, processes that are basically passing power, political power, to frequently corrupt tribal elites on the basis of some kind of ethnic privilege. Now, this is really new, very recent. But many people are doing it because they think 
that the law means they must. They want to respect the treaty. They want to respect um, authority and the, and the courts. And they're being told this is what the law now requires of you. So we want a, a, a considered and um, we, we want a declaration that says no. If this is happening, it's because you're being misled or uh, it can only happen if Parliament actually says it. And Parliament's never had most of this stuff. For example, the way local authorities are passing power to iwi and deferring decisions and declining to to you know, exercise the law until they've consulted and gotten approval. All of that stuff, none of that is is justified by any law that Parliament's passed. It's a, if you like, a, a, a mass sort of Stockholm syndrome thing, I think, where a whole lot of people are not initially happy or enthusiastic, but they are really scared to stand up against it. It, saying, it seems in the, net, the, the new um, bill to replace the RMA, the, the first of them, the Natural and Built Environments Act, it, it's, it's pretty much the same in that particular piece of legislation as it stands at the moment too, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, the minister has said that he doesn't have co-governance in it, but um, he's got the same mechanism where the uh, where Iwi will be invited to make statements about what the... the 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 mana of the environment wants a little bit like you know the water of the water and the the spirit of the water and these they'll be invited to make these statements and then um, there's an expectation and in some cases it, it it's um, more than an expectation that the people exercising power under the under the new RMA um, entities will obey, obey so no the the RMA is a massive transfer of power from property owners and councils to often self-appointed iwi experts. Mm. Well, there was a really intriguing article in the New Zealand Herald today by Kate McNamara, who has um, regularly uh, waved the flag against the Three Waters legislation. But she makes the comment that even a small change in the current legislation could make a huge difference. And she's referring to the Tamana Otawai statements, which currently say they have to be given effect to by the water services entities. In other words, they've got to be enacted. Uh, Chris Hipkins as the new Prime Minister, Karen McAnulty as the new uh, Minister of Local Government, could easily change that, as uh, Kate McNamara points out, uh, by saying instead of give effect to, give consideration to. I mean, it's not a major uh, change of wording, but it makes so much difference from a legislative point of view, doesn't it? Yeah, it would be. Although with the way that councils are acting at the moment and many other bodies are acting at the moment, it probably wouldn't necessarily make a big difference in practice because they're already acting under existing law where they're required to consult, uh, give consideration, take account of. There's a, a range of different words that Parliament's used uh, where they are essentially turning that into a de facto veto power or a de facto um, indirect control. So, yes, I, I would expect that there will be changes of that nature, but unless they are accompanied by practical um, provisions that, that make it clear that the consultation is a, is a, is a matter of courtesy, if you like, um, 
I, I think that we'll see the de facto power continuing to be exercised um, by these these resuscitated iwi bodies. So you're not uh, overly hopeful then of the new prime minister and the new minister of local government uh, making a huge difference as far as the Three Waters legislation is concerned, even though Hipkins himself has talked about uh, a reset and having a good look at the current legislation and trying to communicate it better. Do you see any hope that he might be pulling back on what's there at the moment? I think he'll be wanting to appear as if he's pulling back, very much so, in the same way that um, Minister David Parker um, deliberately made it clear that he hadn't um, conceded co-governance in the RMA. But the fine print and the practice and the fear of people of being called racist if they question or challenge any of this stuff means that um, I think it will only really be rolled back and will only really restore uh, equality before the law with some very express um, removals, complete removals of, of the, some of the stuff and, a, and express statements that um, negate ethnic privilege. So that, you would think, would only happen with a change of government after October the 14th. So if uh, a National Act government does come to power then and it repeals the current WSE uh, bill and or Act and any other legislation that uh, might be passed before October the 14th, and then they set out to replace the Three Waters legislation, what do you think should be the key elements of any new legislation that does replace what's there at the moment? For instance, should there be Maori or iwi influence at all in Three Waters legislation? Well, I would say from a water use perspective, yes, there should be. If it's water that comes from their land or is being used by them in the same way that there should be user uh, and supplier uh, and and catchment owner uh, influence generally and the best way to secure that is to ensure that local control is retained. Um, someone sitting in Hamilton governing Northland or these distant um, entities are going to find it much easier to go along with the current trend to um, elite negotiations behind closed doors than the, the current arrangement where local authorities have to deal with the people who elect them. So I, I think it wouldn't be hard to remove this privilege without um, giving legitimate offence to anyone. But a whole lot of expectations have been raised. And it's, and it's, it's, not, it's not fair to blame this just on Labor. I mean, a whole lot of this co-governance stuff has been very much part of the result of uh, Chris Finlayson's time and the many concessions and the, the arrangements he set up for co-governance, express arrangements for co-governance, and the and, and what um, Nick Smith put into the RMA on Maori have a have the um, whip hand on writing plans, for example. So there's an awful lot of of race privilege being put into the law over the last few years, which has, if I were Maori, I'd be expecting it to continue. I mean, they've been essentially told this is a journey and we're we're well on the road. So any kind of rollback is going to be contentious. But I put this to you. I think under English common law, 
water is regarded as a common good and nobody owns it. We supposedly adopted English common law here back after we signed the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. So therefore, you would think, you would uh, think logically that nobody owns water. After all, it's a naturally occurring product. It's like the air that we breathe. It's like the sun that shines. Why is it? Why is it that Māori have somehow been able through court cases to make a claim for ownership of a naturally occurring substance. I mean, how did this come about? How did it happen? Well, it, it was it was a weak area of the common law. I mean, to say that you can't own water was sort of a shorthand about water that was flowing through your land or water in a river or water um, in a lake and so forth, where at the time of the the common law, common law was very practical. There weren't really ways to own it. Um, you could own fishing rights. You could own the bed of the river to the middle, and you could own bits that you could practically exercise control over. But for most practical purposes, you didn't own water. Of course, the the common law very quickly had a big qualification to that, and that was unless you'd captured it. So you could own the water in your dam, and you could own the water in your tank or your bucket, and or you had rights that were the same as ownership. Uh, and so it's not it's not it's not weird that people that Maori, for example, the Iwi might say, uh, this was traditionally our spring, and we've never given up our uses of it. And to the extent that the common law assured us of um, protection of our rights, um, we still own it. And we ought to have be able to de- decide who disposes of it and what happens. So I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's um, fair to recognise that there are probably water bodies around New Zealand where the common law would grant a legitimate control right and and let's call it ownership because it's the bundle of rights that that say who decides what happens with it and who can dispose of it. But the, subs- the, the substance we, we itself, yeah. But the substance yeah. itself yeah. Uh, is constantly moving. As I say, it uh, it occurs naturally. It, it falls from the sky. Even water in a dam well, it, is, it is, until, is is never there forever. Well, it is until you. I mean, for practical purposes, you you own it. It's the same. You buy a bottle of water, and that that water in your bottle, you can exercise all the rights of ownership with respect to it. So it's a sort of idle thing to say no one can own water because we have the kinds of rights that we call ownership of water often. So it's not impossible that there are, I mean, it's a it's an issue that everyone's ducked and the Land and Water Forum went for years and they never really tackled it, um, that there will be some areas of water, some water bodies, where uh, some of you, we probably have a pretty good claim. But the problem with this the law where it's gone now is it said, oh, let's get past all that and instead we'll give them a whole lot of um, rights that don't look like ownership, but they're basically negative rights. They're rights of veto or powers of, of indirect control, but which can be turned into money through the being problematic. And it's a little bit like many of the rights that have been granted on the RMA, you can 
you can have a very great um, paralyzing effect on how land is used, even though it's not yours. And you can make money by getting out of the way, by getting out of the way, by allowing things to happen simply because of those paralyzing moves. Would have been better to have said, um, let's have property rights the way they were properly, the way, way we used to have them, and the RMA just walked all over them. It's um, it's a vexed question, which I thought was quite a simple one until you explained it like that. Because you see, I live right beside the Clutha River. Uh, there are farms in my neighbourhood that draw. Well, the next door farm takes uh, 110 litres a second from the Clutha and puts it through its pivot. Uh, and it's got that right to do that until 2048. It's a quite extraordinary water consent that it has from the regional council. What bothers me is that a member of Naitahu could drive past that farm, see all those pivots going all day during the summer, and under Temana Otawai issue a statement saying, no, we don't like that. There's too much water being taken from the Clutha. And uh, it, it just seems that the rights that farmers have that people have made significant investment for uh, could be taken away by this legislation. And surely that's a major worry for property rights in this country, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, we should have had a property rights regime for water a long time ago. Uh, 30 years ago, well, Australia has it. You can buy and sell water and, and it's, it's relatively straightforward and it acquires a price and except for a few legislative privileges uh, like, to, like to farmers. Um, it, it goes to the best use and it gets conserved and not wasted. But those rights that um, those irrigation rights um, should be converted to proper rights and tradable rights. And then if they're being wasted on irrigation and water scarce, they'll, they'll be traded to something more valuable. Yes, we should have. But you, you don't get there by saying there's no property rights. It's more about saying on what possible basis can Naitahu say they owned it? They, they, they didn't ever have any of the effect of powers of control, and no one did. And at that time, it was right to treat the common law as being correct that no one could own the Clutha. And they can't own the Clutha now, but they certainly, it's fair that people recognise there's a scarcity in the um, number of, of different uses that you'd want, and those who have rights should be able to make them clear and registered as property rights. And um, I'd say that Naitahu should be well down the queue because there's simply no record that they ever uh, had, they didn't have property there that they lost. Indeed. So finally, Stephen, what's your hope then for the future of water services in New Zealand? I know it's a broad brush question, but uh, this is going to be one of the big issues of 2023. What's your hope about the way things are, are set out uh, for, for, uh, the, for, for the for the three waters, or should we call them now the yes. five waters? <laughs> well, because they extend it. Uh, I, I think the the benefit of this row is that people have finally realised just how radical, how um, how sinister is these creeping um, transfers of rights or creation of political control rights. And now, in the three water scheme, it's absolutely open that. They were giving to people with neither qualification in terms of experience or ability or any genuine historical um, interest. They were handing over pipes, ponds, 
um, sewage plants, treatment plants, uh, the, the whole infrastructure associated with water, putting it into bodies remote from control of users and deliberately sticking in um, EU representatives in, in a position where they could exercise um, at the very least veto powers and with the Tamana Otiwai statements possibly much more than that and be all on the basis of inherited um, of racial of ra racial entitlement. Now, I I hope that the furore over this um, has alerted a whole lot of people who were desperately keen to pretend that um, it was all benign, and that includes um, cabinet ministers from the last government as well as uh, some who've been worried in this government but been too afraid to stand up. And I think I hope that Nanaima Mahuta has overplayed the iwi power grab hand. And but I think that for water specifically, uh, the rational position would be evolution from where we are. There will be some, um, you know, local authorities which are finding it too expensive and should rationalise. There will be some that don't need to, and they run perfectly well. There'll be a whole lot of small-scale schemes where the government should just get out of the way. There's the new service to uh, control water quality, Tamara Arawai, has been told to stick its nose into anyone who's got more than one household on a supply. So if you've got your wall sheet as well as your house on the on the supply from your spring or creek, suddenly you're going to have a whole lot of obligations and pretty terrible liabilities um, for it. Now, there's a great, a great overreach there, but Tamara Arawai as an independent quality regulator is probably a good idea and they will need to tune up the some of the local authorities that have been allowing their water to um, to, to deteriorate and building nice to haves in their in their areas instead of the must haves the fixing their water and making sure it's clean and, and secure. All right. So the fifteenth of February is your date at the Court of Appeal. The way the Court of Appeal works these days, I presume it'll be a reserve judgment that day. When do you expect something in writing from our learned friends? Well, the the, um, the High Court was reasonably prompt. I think it was about two months. Uh, it's not a... We say that it's not a difficult point. We say that the law is really clear. Um, they have to hand it over. and the And that's because the... It's, this is under the Evidence Act, which talks about when there's legal privilege, and we think the section is plain. If the court agrees with us that you can't go back and drag in earlier law in a way that effectively contradicts what the current law says, we'll win. And that wouldn't take them long to write that. If instead they decide they need to um, show why earlier judge-made law can prevail against what we think is a pretty clear statute, then it could take them a long time, months. Whatever it is, we'd thought that this case would be over well before the election. We thought we'd be in the in the High Court. We'd have a High Court uh, decision on the merits. That is, is, the, is whoever says that the treaty requires co-governance, are they right or wrong? We'd expected to have that a long time ago. We started the case in December 2021, so we're now 14 months in and we're still on the interlocutory um, process. But that's New Zealand law now. It's just so constipated. 
very good word for it. Stephen Franks, thank you for your time. Best wishes for the hearing on the 15th of February. We await the outcome. Thank you for talking to us on Taxpayer Talk. A pleasure. And that is this edition of Taxpayer Talk. The Taxpayers' Union is still leading the opposition to the Three Waters legislation, but it's just waiting to see what changes, if any, there will be under the new Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, and the new Minister for Local Government, Kieran McAnulty. We're hopeful that a change of leadership and a change of minister will mean a change of direction for the Three Waters legislation, especially in the role that Māori and iwi interests would have in the governance of water entities. Now, at the time of recording this podcast, though, there has been nothing but a few hints dropped by Chris Hipkins that Three Waters has, quote, a lot of baggage associated with it and a reset is needed, but no signs yet of that reset. But what National and Act need to do as the October 14 election approaches is start giving some ideas as to what their replacement Three Waters legislation would look like if they were to be elected to government. But then, as the polls showed last week, uh, that is far from certain. If you have any comments on today's podcast, you can get me on peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Thanks for listening. This is Peter Williams for Taxpayer Talk. Thank you.